Welcome to Making Action Happen with Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain. We're here to discuss public policy issues in our home state of Colorado and beyond. Making Action Happen is presented by Action 22. Find out about our organization at action22.org. Now, here are your hosts, Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Making Action Happen. I'm Sarah Blackhurst. I'm Brian McCain. And we're coming to you today to talk about one of the things that has become a top priority in our region and for Action 22, and that is uh, broadband. We had uh, we had thought that we could um, sort of get around this um, for a while, but uh, we, we were having some conversations, and, and as you've already heard, there's going to be um, a, a right ton around, of money. Right about a billion that. dollars um, that are um, we're trying to um, apply in Colorado to address the governor's, and it's, it's, it's a much needed order, the governor's order that um, Colorado is 99, has 99% access to broadband by 2027. That means 99% of the population in Colorado is to have access to broadband um, by um, by that that time, um, it sounds really simple when you say it like that. Just build more broadband, but it is a wildly complicated uh, yeah, process. Yeah, it's, it's very complicated. So what we did is um, through the Action Twenty Two Broadband Coalition, um, we invited some of the members to come on and speak. So this is going to be a very uh, technical episode. So just listen. Uh, I think we have one, two, three, four, five total speak. Well. More than that, but five groups of people speaking on this, just talking about what they're doing, how they're approaching this, accessing funds, and what the path forward is. So stick around for that and enjoy the episode. Yep. And we wanted to, uh, this is really an important one. Um, and uh, we'd like you to come to us with any questions that you have, any comments that you have, any concerns at show at action 22. Dot org. All right. Um, we want to welcome uh, our, our colleague and our friend, Ben. Um, ben has been working on this uh, project with the Action 22 Broadband Coalition with us, and, and he comes at this from a, a consultant and technical support perspective. And so we wanted to get uh, his perspective on all these things that we're working on. So, Ben, welcome to the show. Uh, can you start out by telling us a little bit about you and, and uh, how you got into broadband and, and where you've done this? And just give us a little background of, on you. Yeah, sure, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. Um, So I got into this industry uh, about 12 years ago, um, and I began by doing uh, field work, collecting uh, data out on the street for engineering companies who, uh, you know, were trying to get um, fiber broadband projects permitted. Um, And I kind of worked my way up uh, through... Uh, the ranks of, of the industry, if you will, doing everything from um, uh, managing field personnel to doing uh, actual performing actual network design engineering services to managing teams of engineers. Um, and then I've spent probably the last six and a half to seven years or so of my career doing um, kind of a, a more of a consulting element of, of broadband where I work uh, particularly with public clients, um, towns, 
cities, counties, regions uh, who need help um, sort of navigating the process of determining how to solve their broadband problems, whether that takes the direction of them building their own broadband infrastructure and operating it as a utility, um, or if that takes the shape of a public-private partnership where they work closely with an internet service provider to um, lower the barrier of entry for a private uh, enterprise to come in and, and deliver broadband service. The, the way that, that broadband sort of typically tends to happen, uh, particularly for smaller rural communities, um, is that, you know, these uh, uh, your large um, ISPs, through no fault of their own, you know, they're publicly traded companies, they're beholden to their shareholders, and they have limited capital that they can use to expand and improve their network. Um, and because they have to show, you know, continual profits, they focus their investment into, they tend to focus their investment into larger, more metro areas. And that's not to say that these big ISPs are not open to working in these smaller communities, but it takes a, a more collaborative effort to, to put together um, an approach that makes sense for those companies um, as well as sort of serving the needs of these communities who've been a little bit left behind. So I've been working in that space for quite a while and, and particularly here in Colorado uh, for the past five years or so where it's a, it's a very exciting time to be in broadband uh, in Colorado right now. There's a lot of momentum and, um, a lot of people are working really hard to solve this problem for our fellow Coloradans. So I think on the outset, a lot of people think that this is a relatively simple problem. Just build out the uh, infrastructure and then, uh, and then, um, you know, hook people up. So, <laughs> so it, if it was that easy, we wouldn't be easy. having this problem so right now. It's, it's a wildly complicated problem. Um, and it's for a lot of reasons. We're talking about a lot of different um, players, a lot of different uh, needs. And the, it, every, we always hear that uh, sort of liking it to um, a century ago when we were trying to make sure that everybody had uh, electricity to their homes. This is the same kind of issue that we're talking about right now. So this was really interesting uh, for me. The reason that Action 22 uh, restarted their broadband uh, coalition or their broadband committee was because you and your colleagues came to us and said, you know, they're going to do this Arc Valley conduit. We want to dump some fiber into that. Um, and at the same time, let's dig once. And that, again, sounds very simple, but it's it's wildly complicated. And it's a, a lot of what you just laid out, that municipalities and, and um, areas where there's already build out. So the question that I asked from that perspective, and the question that we're asking um, all of our guests for these segments is, um, what is the state of broadband from where you're sitting? It's a great question. So... Um, you, you did a good job of, of kind of describing the outline of the problem, which is that, um, you know, in order to reach these smaller, more rural uh, uh, communities, um, there very often has to be kind of a coalition of, uh, of, of different uh, stakeholders and um, an alignment uh, between 
um, you know, existing potential projects. You mentioned the Arkansas Valley Conduit, which is a, a large scale water distribution project that was initially conceptualized during the Kennedy administration, yep. if you can believe it, and, and was just funded. And that represents, you know, an incredible, as you put it, dig once opportunity. Uh, the right of way will already be opened up for the placement of water pipe and the incremental cost of adding uh, broadband uh, conduit in there so that you could you could place fiber is uh, much lower than it would be to go in and build that fiber as a as a standalone project and so you know part of what that that is what kind of brought me into the fold of action 22 was trying to coalesce a stakeholder group around this opportunity but there's a broader opportunity kind of statewide and and it's obviously going to have a significant impact on the action 22 uh, constituent counties many of which are among the least connected digitally in the state Um, so in terms of the state of broadband in colorado uh, it, it's it's a very exciting week, actually, because we just uh, heard an announcement from the White House this week uh, that the uh, $42.45 billion uh, in grant funding that um, uh, was appropriated as part of the Broadband Equity Access and Deployment Program, they just announced how much uh, money each individual state was going to be uh, getting access to. And here in Colorado, our state broadband office is being given um, $826,522,650, which is quite a significant amount of money. And And it's going to have a, a real tangible impact on our communities. And don't forget the 41 cents, Ben. You're right, and 41 cents. That, that was so funny and weird. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, you you, met, you, know, you mentioned the uh, the Rural Electrification Act of the 1930s. You know, before which uh, I, I want to say 90 percent of American farms and rural households did not have access to electricity, and after which they all do. And we're we're looking at a very similar. Um, process that's just beginning right now. So it's, it's enormously exciting. And, 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 and for, you know, a long time, people in the broadband industry have been crowing about how broadband is a utility and it needs to be treated as such. You know, uh, most people would not buy a home if it didn't have access to the electric grid. Um, and likewise, uh, I think a lot of home buyers today wouldn't buy a house either if it didn't have access to broadband. And so that um, has has had a, a dampening effect on economic development mm-hmm. in, in these smaller, more rural towns, um, which are beautiful, wonderful places to live. Uh, and, in, and in modern times, you know, as, as we all learned during the COVID pandemic, a lot of us are, are capable of doing our jobs remotely so long as we have a good Internet connection. And so, um, you know, this is uh, bringing broadband uh, to these sorts of communities is, is going to be impactful in ways that 
are difficult to predict, you know, because uh, it's, it's, it's the internet is this economic growth engine. Um, it prevents brain drain, you know, young people who graduate from their local high school and move off to get uh, employment or education elsewhere because they can't, um, pursue a career uh, from their home community, uh, you know, and connectivity plays a pivotal role in addressing a lot of those sorts of issues. So it's a very, very exciting time to be uh, in broadband in Colorado. And, and also, you know, one important thing that some of the smaller communities brought up, you have uh, people moving to these areas to get away from the city, you know, live out in the country. And um, it's a tax revenue thing because a lot of these like new opportunities for work, you know, it's all internet based, but you have a lot of these pop-up shops, um, internet pop-up shops, you know, people doing online transactions, selling stuff on, you know, whatever their website. And that does create a tax revenue for the County and the city. And if they don't have broadband there, they're missing out on it as well to, to fund the city, to fund the County. Yeah. That's an excellent point, Brian. I mean, uh, uh, our, municipalities here in Colorado are, are heavily dependent on sales tax revenue. Mm-hmm. So, so you make a very good point. So is this the only money that we're going to see um, as far as uh, getting a broadband build out finally done? Uh, great question, Sarah. No. Um, so we're currently um, in the process of putting together applications for a different state uh, administered broadband program called the Capital Projects Fund, um, which was also uh, funded with federal dollars, um, but it it was rolled out a little bit quicker. So the the deadline for those grant applications is coming up at the end of August, August 21st. And there's been a a significant rush um, for communities around the state to see how they can leverage that tranche of funds um, in the process of, of rolling out that program, the state divided uh, our counties up into what they call tier one and tier two categories, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, and uh, th- those tier one and tier two categories dictate uh, how much funds those uh, different groups can apply for. So the tier one counties have access to one pot of funds. The tier two counties have access to a a different pot of funds. Um, And so it remains to be seen exactly how the bead program will be rolled out. However, it is likely that the state will utilize a similar mechanism so that they don't have to duplicate their efforts. Um, And, uh, they had uh, what what seemed like a, a reasonably successful challenge process that they included with that uh, that tier one and tier two categorization. Um, the initial uh, uh, list of of categ- <laughs> the initial list of counties that they published um, was challenged, and and they. Uh, those challenges were in many cases successful. So some of the, the communities within the Action 22 footprint were actually uh, able to have their classification changed uh, to get them access to, to more uh, potential broadband grant funding from CPF. And the Action... So, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. 
No, um, I, I, yeah, yeah so the Action 22, members of the Action 22 Broadband Coalition um, did a significant amount of work in order to, to really um, lay out the problems with the Tier 1 and the Tier 2, because um, that also included MAC, or included matching funds as well, right? So it wasn't just yes. how much, but it was how much of a match and what they could afford as what, well, correct? What was that's the, and, correct. And, so, and what was the difference, sorry, um, no, that's what okay. was the difference between the Tier 1 and Tier 2? What was the threshold on that, too, if you can talk about yeah, that also? Yeah, so uh, if I'm not mistaken, the, the Tier 1s, <clears throat> had um, a, a lower match requirement of 25% and the tier twos had a match requirement of 50%. Okay. Right. Uh, and then the total pot of available funds uh, was significantly higher for the tier one communities versus the tier two communities. So that, that differentiator of, you know, a 25% difference yeah. in the match requirement is pretty huge, especially when you're talking about, you know, under-resourced communities that don't right. have a big sales tax base to draw from, who don't have a large population. Um, so right. That was really important work yeah. that we were able to do in getting those counties recategorized. So we have, we're almost out of time with you, Ben. Um, I would ask um, one last question for you, um, and then we're, we'll have uh, several other of our partners on. Uh, you've worked in, in multiple states on this, and you've been working on this for a long time. Could you just give us a quick uh, snapshot of the nuances of, of navigating these problems in Colorado as compared to other states? Yeah, sure. So we have in Colorado some significant topographical challenges that are not present in, in other markets. I I cut my teeth in broadband in central Texas, which is like pretty flat you know and there's no, <laughs> no mountains there's not a lot of crazy freeze dry cycles yeah the, the mountains are the big yeah <laughs> yeah the big thing so um when you're dealing with uh fiber construction or or infrastructure construction really of any kind in a mountainous environment like we have in half of our state um you know there are all kinds of considerations that come into play that can add significant costs that other places don't have to deal with you you know you have households that are up these uh very narrow canyon roads um with uh no shoulder um meaning no available right-of-way in which to uh, place underground utilities um you then run into additional requirements for traffic control to be done safely so that you can, you know, uh, uh, operate a, a construction of, of network in, in an environment like that. So the, the construction costs are significantly higher in a mountainous uh, environment as compared to, uh, say, the eastern part of our state where, where we have uh, – a lot easier uh, build uh, environment to work in. Um, and that uh, those sorts of things were taken into consideration uh, by the NTIA when they were determining how much funds to allocate to each state. So Colorado got, you know, our, our 865, uh, or excuse me, $826 million. Um, you know, a, a large part of the reason why we were allocated so much is that we have many uh, what are called high cost uh, locations to serve uh, based on you know our terrain right yeah it's a good way to put it is um, 
well, two ways. So if you look at a map to drive from point A to point B in the mountains on a map looks like 10 miles, but to drive that would take a hundred miles. So if you can imagine that in broadband as well, you know, it may look like it's only one mile on a map, but that could be 20 miles and $10 million to put one fiber line there. Exactly. (laughs) So the, there's um, multiple tranches of funds and then the state right now, um, what they have to do is they have to return a a report or a plan as to how they're going to use that money. Um, and so there's a lot of deadlines coming up. There's a lot of a lot more discussions to be had. So it's not. Um, would you? I mean, is that? I'm asking you. Is that what you yeah, think? No, is it? Is it? Everybody can just yeah. put in for the money, and we're good. And it's well, it's 826 million dollars and fifty five hundred yeah. blah 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 and and four and forty one cents. Like, right? That does sound like a lot of money. However, it is going to go very quickly, and yes. this is going to be is anticipated to be a highly competitive process. Right. The CPF rollout, which um, I think is, is perhaps a good example to look to uh, is, is quite competitive. Um, And so, uh, you know, I I think to their credit, the Colorado state broadband office has done a reasonably good job of, um, uh, controlling expectations around what that CPF rollout was going to actually, how, how impactful that was actually going to be. Um, and, uh, it, you know, it, and, in, and in rolling out a, a distribution process that is, um, you know, as, as fair as is reasonable, I, I would not want to be in the position of trying to determine exactly how to draw the lines on you know, who is eligible for how much money. That's a difficult call to have to make. That's true. Um, but I think that they've done a pretty good job. And, and I'm, I'm particularly appreciative of the fact that they have been open to criticism uh, when the people on the ground with a better local understanding of, of what a given community is actually experiencing uh, when those, when those, in those, it's in those situations uh, this, the state broadband office has been uh, receptive to pushback. And I think that that's, um, that bodes well for uh, how the bead rollout will, will also go. Fingers crossed. Yeah. yeah, that's a great place to stop. Well, um, yeah, thank you for your time. But I, I also wanted to say one thing that I heard in a conversation yesterday. It was, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, when they electrified America, they said, you know, they did it simply that it worked. Why don't they, they do that again? It's um, one, and this was brought up in the solar meeting. Mm-hmm. Um, one, you know, there were less people. And two, there were less rules, regulations, and permits because compared to a century ago, it's a lot tougher to get something yeah. hung or dug a ditch or whatever. Yeah, there's there's regulations upon regulations, yep. even with regard to um, collaborations with each other. So, Ben, thank you so much. Um, we'll talk to you soon, um, and uh, we'll share your information um, as far as people wanting to reach out to you with questions. So thank you so much. Yeah, no, thank you so much for having me, and, and uh, it's it's an exciting time to be a Colorado. So. <laughs> it is. All Thanks. Right. All right. Thanks, Ben. All right. So I want to welcome John and Anne, who are um, going to be with us today on this episode. John and Anne are both from CECOM, and we've been working with CECOM for quite a while, but John has been 
in this for quite a while, and he's always a resource for us on any broadband questions that we ask. So, I'm, John, I'm going to ask you in, um, to introduce yourself and then introduce Anne uh, and tell us a little bit about your um, history with broadband in the region. And then also I think it, it's important for everyone to know um, who and where you serve so, John, I want to turn it over to you. This is John Saunders, and he's just an amazing voice on, on telecom and broadband. Thanks, John, for being with us. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you for having us here today. Uh, so, yes, I'm John Saunders. I'm the Chief Business Development Officer for CECOM. So, CECOM is a provider in the southeastern corner of the state. So, if you think of Colorado Springs, draw a line to can- down to Canyon City, and then down to the state line the new mexico state line by trinidad and then you take and draw another line from colorado springs and go out to uh east to the kansas state line uh and pretty much all parts in between that's pretty loosely the area that seacom covers so it's a pretty big area uh, a lot of big open space uh some places there's very few people and a lot of open land and probably more jackrabbits out there so seacom uh, is actually a subsidiary of Southeast Colorado Power Association, and that's how this all got started 25 years ago. Um, Otero College uh, and Lamar Community College wanted to get connected together, and they weren't able to get anything worked out with the local telephone company, so they approached the power company, Southeast Colorado Power, and from there it kind of blossomed and bloomed, and 600 miles of fiber were put in and uh, hooked up 22 K-12 schools. I think there were eight libraries, four hospitals, um, uh, Pueblo, CSU Pueblo, and uh, then all of the extension agencies at each of these counties out here. So that's how it got started. And uh, uh, amazingly, you know, this area's had a lot of technology for a lot of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the schools in 1999 actually had 100 megabit of connectivity clear back then wow so, wow. so yeah it's it's pretty amazing so I, I started 24 years ago uh they were just getting ready to start turning things up when i started but uh yeah that, that's kind of me and seacom's history our story we are now a wholly owned subsidiary so we, we spun off as a separate corporation but it's completely owned by the power company so functionally everything is still pretty much the same just two different sets of financials so so uh, with that go, let go me ahead. let me tell you really quick for reference for uh those listeners of ours who are not in the state of colorado and don't really know the um the geography that John just described, they're, they're considered a small player. CECOM is considered a relatively small player, um, not for the region, but statewide. But their, um, their footprint is bigger than some eastern uh, states in uh, eastern United States. So um, it's, it's uh, all relative, isn't it? It, it is. And just to put some things in perspective, so Southeast Power, we do expand out past the South, Southeast Power uh, network footprint, but Southeast Power's electric footprint, round numbers, they have about one consumer, a residential consumer per mile of line. So, you know, there, there's more meters because there's barns and other things like that. But if you actually look at households where there's somebody that would potentially get internet one per mile of line, uh, that that's extremely low density. Uh, you get in a community, you know, you're talking 
you know, 40, 50 or more, uh, or in some places, you know, with a, with multi-dwelling buildings, you know, you can get up in the hundreds of, of units per mile of line. So, uh, again, it makes it very cost prohibitive or very, it's not very lucrative, uh, uh, in these small areas here. It's very expensive to do that and maintain it. Thank you, John. Introduce us to Anne. Sure. So this is Ann Boswell. Uh, that girl can talk. She is, uh, she's on radio. <laughs> she, she's well versed in background and, <laughs> and these types of things. So, uh, yeah. And she started with, uh, with Southeast Power and Seacom. What about nine months ago, Ann? About, yeah. yeah about that. Okay. Oh, yeah. Closing in on a year now. Yeah, it is. It's coming up on it. But you know, she uh, she does the communications for for both companies, and uh, and does a lot of the, the 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 digital imaging and so forth like that. So this is right up her alley. So. <laughs> well, thanks My you goodness. both for being here. Um, so a lot of our discussions in and uh John also sits on the Action 22 broadband committee this coalition that is working um so hard to make sure that this last final mile is delivered and what the governor's um the governor's order on 99% um broadband throughout the state that actually happens and in a way that's affordable um, and accessible. So, so John, um, tell us a little bit, and then Anne, if you if you chime in, what is the state of broadband where you're at? Yeah, that's a great question, Sarah. So, the state out here, Seacom um, has fiber in pretty much every one of the little communities out in this corner of the state. There's a few that we don't. Uh, very rural areas that are outside of the power company's footprint. Uh, we would ultimately like to get to those sometime because there are neighbors in this part of the state. Um, with that, we have fiber to those towns, and within those towns, some have full fiber capabilities that we've done fiber to the home. We actually did that through state grants a few years ago. Uh, so Los Animas, Holly, Springfield, and Pritchett all have fiber to the home. Uh, so you can get a gigabit of service out in those small rural communities. And uh, we have fiber hoods in some of the other communities. So, you know, Lahana, for example, we have several fiber hoods in there. There's enough people within a block or a few blocks that's right close to the fiber. They've had interest and round up enough people to make it worthwhile that we've built that out. And, we, and then we have those fiber hoods there. For the rest of the people that are outside of the fiber footprint, we do have a fixed wireless solution. And uh, fixed wireless is really improved over the last few years here. It's been continually improving since they started it. 20 plus years ago, I uh, started deploying it. Uh, but you can get a 100 megabit connection now on a fixed wireless. So I literally live 10 miles out of town, pretty much 10 miles from anywhere. And uh, the connection I get at my house, I get 50 megs real easily. And it's not the latest and greatest equipment out there. Uh, so it, it's more than ample to do what I need to do. So I'm John's neighbor. I live even further out than John. And I, I was able to run a small business from my home really easily with my wireless. It was a reliable, dependable wireless um, for my That Girl Can Talk podcast. I was able to easily do that. So it, it really has come a long way. And I, I think that the possibilities are, are there. 
uh, with people. And I'll just add to the fact that every time we go somewhere and talk about internet, though, I think that there's still a big education piece on it. Um, people know they just want something fast, you know, they don't, a lot of people, John knows, obviously it's what he does and it's what we do, but he doesn't, you know, most people don't know how many upload, download speeds. They just know that they want fiber because they bring fibers fast. And um, we, and so the education piece has been pretty big in getting people, you know, that in, piece of information, like what we offer, where we offer it. So the marketing piece has been, you know, there's people who aren't going to really get fiber where they are. John and I don't have it, but it's very dependable wireless where we are. And and I think that's that's remarkable that we've come that far, um, especially as rural as we are. I mean, he said one person per mile, uh, my closest neighbor is a mile away. So yeah. I think that that is true. So. So th- th- go ahead, Sarah, if you have Oh, a so I was going to I was going to ask you. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of money out there right now, and we know that um, this week the bead funds came out, and it's um, it's sort of a billion dollars for Colorado, but um, and and people think you know that's a whole lot of money, but when we're talking about telecom, it's not. It's not the only pot of money. Um, there's infrastructure money coming out. Uh, so. I guess from the perspective of of where we're sitting, um, we see a lot of people, you know, jumping in and and trying to wrangle this money and and influence where it goes. What would you say is the most important um, objective with regard to to the money and, and how it's spent at this point? Okay. Yes, and, and this brings me right leads into the point I was gonna to, to mention. So I listed all of the, the the upsides and the things that are great and going well here. Uh, the other side of that is there's still a number of people that aren't served out here just because it's so rural and so sparse out here. Um, this money is going to go a long way to help, but I don't think we can get the whole state hooked up with that that like we need to. But it will go a long way. Uh, our opinion is a, a hybrid solution of both a combination of fiber and wireless is what we feel is the best solution for this area. So if we can run more corridors and, you know, main, main roads or highways that don't have fiber right now, if we can get fiber there, you can hook up those people that are right along that path as well as then you can hook up towers uh and it doesn't have to be you know traditional you know big huge towers uh they can be relatively small to put the fixed wireless on and then we can serve people off of that um there's some new technology out there that we could actually get them 400 megabits of download we're testing it in one location right now and it's working really well but if we get more fiber network built out there then we can get people up to speeds uh 400 and they anticipate that by the end of the year they'll have it up where that will be running at 800 megs so again those are pretty good speeds so if we can do this much much more affordably uh, by using that hybrid solution we think that's the way to go and and this creates a great opportunity for it with some of the the funding coming in Uh, there there are still some other challenges we can get into later on that uh, and how it might get deployed in here Uh, but again that that's the 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 downside is the people that are needing it the most now, those are the most expensive to get to and the hardest to get to. Of course. Let me ask you, Anne, the, 
and John's been in this um, for such a long time, um, and so both of you would be considered experts by any standard. Um, do you feel like, you know, two decades in and however many um, iterations of build-outs and, and all this going on, do you feel like the decision-makers on this are listening to that expertise and those recommendations on this is actually what needs to happen in our communities? Well, I think they're trying because we've seen a lot of town halls and we've seen people like, want to hear from the people like, you know, wh- where are you and what would you like to see in your area? In addition, I think that, that the state had, had reached out to us and they had asked us, the, the broadband office, you know, to find broadband stories of people that live in areas that would be significantly, their lives would be significantly improved with higher speeds of Internet, of course, uh, we found a couple of people, they were grant writers and, you know, they were always on calls and they were saying the calls were dropped where they are and that their lives would be improved. I think the message is getting out there and I think people are able to um, get the message out there, whether or not um, the listening piece is there. I don't know, but they did ask for it. So, um, you know, we're trying, I'm trying as communications coordinator the best I can to get the information out there that we have, have ways that people can, can let everyone know where they are they can run speed test um of course there were maps you know that they they can challenge that the fcc outed of where the broadband coverage was or where the capabilities were and of course a lot of times you know when we were we were talking and we were listening to these town halls and sessions they would say those aren't exactly accurate if you look at our property from the air it looks like four people live on our place because we have structures we have barns and 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 outbuildings and so I think that whether or not uh, the listening is happening, it's certainly it's been an effort out there. And it's been an effort for us to push that as well, to get people educated on how to let, let everyone know, hey, I'm out here and I'd like higher speed Internet or I just like Internet. You know, there's there's that. Thank you. And what do you think, John? Uh, I think, you know, the local uh, governments, cities, counties have done a fantastic job. And the state broadband office, I believe, is doing a great job, too. Uh, they've had a lot of challenges with them right now uh, with just what's been put forth with the money coming out and ramping up that quick. So they've done a good job. and They've got some great people there uh, to put these programs out there, asking questions uh, it, to try to make it as best they can. They're talking to industry. The biggest challenges we see uh, come from Washington, D.C., especially when you get multiple deploying agencies spending money that may conflict with each other or there's a lack of communication between two uh, national departments that – create some overlap or create some challenges in how they're deploying the money. That That's the biggest problem we've seen. It's actually creating some big problems uh, on the eastern side of the state here. Yeah. The, wait, agencies not communicating and <laughs> conflicting with each other? I've never heard of this before from a federal level. So, so John, like, wow, what happened? <laughs> without, without naming names, give us an example. All right, so one... One agency had a program that they did what's called a reverse auction. So they said, we think you can serve all of the people in these census blocks and tracks with this amount of money. And which was not near enough one. So they said, what we're going to do is we'll put it up. Here's the, the minimum. Basically, they do a reverse auction each day. You could come in and you could lower the number until there's one person left standing 
And, uh, the way they went around about doing that, it's not realistic that it's probably going to happen. Um, they've actually got six years to get this deployed, which we feel is way too long of a timeline. Uh, yeah. the problem is that area is tied up because they've been approved for funding by this federal agency. Uh, statute says that another federal agency cannot fund that area so if they don't start building in that area for four years five years those people in that area are not going to have broadband for that long time they're going to miss uh, out and they're going to miss out years is ridiculous yeah yes exactly so uh there's a good chunk of colorado that's going to be that that's in that in the, in the eastern half of colorado very rural areas uh and the 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 awardee that got this area, they have areas in multiple states. So my guess is they're going to take the money and go to the first areas that are probably the most profitable and have density, so they can get cash flow. And I mean that that's just good business sense. Yeah. So our concern is that's going to leave these people out in the rural parts of Colorado uh, a little bit high and dry here. Um, it's definitely concerning, and um, there's there's been a lot of discussion between um, do we support um, you know local governments or state agencies, or do we um, support ISPs? And when they think about an ISP or an internet service provider, um, they're thinking great big companies, and and you hear a lot of your so you're you end up competing not only against. Um, federal agency, you know, with federal agencies, but with state agencies and with other much larger um, uh, organizations or, or providers. How are you navigating all that? I think, so go ahead, Ann. I think so. We're competing with with big big players, right? And I think that's what the question was. I can just say from the marketing and the communications in here is we've tried to to really be. I mean, we are a local company. We're a small company, and we serve rural Colorado. Um, get internet from the folks you know. It's, it's something we've been saying. Um, we're here with local tech support. And so we've been trying to let people know that, um, you know, if, if all things are, are equal, we you get your internet. Of course, we're going up against the big guys, right? Um, I, I think there's this push, especially, um, you know, after. After COVID, we saw people wanting to support small businesses or smaller businesses and really moving forward with that. It, it's been one of the things that, that we've used that we found has been pretty, pretty valuable. Um, you know, how we compete with them, I don't really know um, outside of we just be, we offer a very good product. We offer very good tech support and um, we try to just be as um, local as possible. I mean, like, you know, because if you're, if you're getting internet from the folks you know, I mean, I don't know how, how you could beat that. But that's that's certainly been a challenge, and that's certainly been something that we've talked about in marketing meeting after marketing meeting. Oh, I'm sure. And but I was I was more referring to um, going after these dollars. Um, that's oh, okay. yeah. So Sorry? and no, no. It's, well, I, I, I think you laid it out really nicely well, about what the what the challenges are for these rural small. I think it ties hand in hand because we're seeing from some of the larger ISPs, they're not necessarily competing for the dollars; they're cooperating for the dollars. If that makes sense, and we, we've seen that across the board. It's kind of like the you know with banking. It's why would Wells Fargo compete with a small community bank when the community community bank does it better, but Wells Fargo will still be there. Um, 
And, and that's what it seems like with the ISPs when it comes to this funding is at least the conversations I've been a part of. I, I think you're right, Brian, because we've um, with our even our broadband committee, we have some really big players at this at the table with the smaller players. And it's um, it's been our experience that um, the people who are coming to the table, whether it's a local government or CECOM or or whoever, yeah. that their that their objective is the same and it's yeah. delivery on that. But when you've got um, <laughs> muddied waters on the state level or on, even on the federal level, yeah. that makes it so much more difficult. So let me ask the question in a different way. How are you partnering with other um, people who are going after these grant dollars in a way that's going to help meet that objective? We have had several meetings um, where we've talked to community, other people in the community, community groups, basically, and, and, and decided that um, we would be stronger together. You know, like, for example, applying for these grants um, rather than have a bunch of different little entities and people applying, that if we all put our name on it together, it would be stronger. I've been on a couple of meetings. I'll tell you, I think John's probably been on a lot more of those, so maybe John can speak a little more to that. But that's kind of the way I understood that, that, you know, how we would need to be stronger as a community by signing on together to support each other in this and, and going forward to get the money. Because then it looks like Southeast Colorado needs Internet versus, you know, this organization and this organization, yep. and, you know, and it, and it also just helps, you know, right? Because um, it's just there are fewer, fewer players, fewer people to deal with, and we all kind of sign on um, to help each other out. and. If I understood that right, John, that's that's what that's what we're doing. Yes, exactly. So a, a more regional approach is is good. I believe that helps when the if you think about it from the state's perspective, you know, that's administering this eight hundred and what never million dollars, as well as the the hundred and forty million dollars from the other pocket of money. It. Uh, they have to take off pieces of that for the administration of it. There's a cost to that. And so if they administer 50 grants throughout the state, I'm just making numbers up here, but if they administer 50 grants, that's a lot less administrative burden than if you had 500 grants or 800 grants or something, each one of these small ones. Uh, It's going to be much harder to administer those. So a regional approach makes a lot of sense uh, to get those done that way. Uh, There's, fewer points of contact and less education on how they need things filled out. It's just, it just simplifies the whole process. And, and I, I've got to say uh, the county cities we've worked with have just been amazing to work with. Uh, fantastic. Um, it, and I'll give an example of this. One of the communities that uh, where we got a fiber to the home grant uh, from the state a few years ago, we anticipated there was going to, we, we built it early on the electric lines. We anticipated there's going to be a fair amount of work because sometimes there may be a clearance issue. And so we would be out of compliance. So they have to put in new poles to raise them up or, or whatever the case may be. They may not be a strong enough pole. We had budgeted a significant number uh, of dollars in that grant to do that. When we came in there and said, told the city, hey, we did get the grant, they said, Tell us whatever you need. We will take care of all of the electric poles, and they call it make ready. We'll take care of it, and they did. We were actually able to turn many, money back to the state uh, on that because that community, they were so appreciative of it. You know, they uh, they rolled out the red carpet. 
Uh, I love to hear that story because I think when we um, sit around and, and discuss how to do this, that regional approach is is a very difficult. It's, it's a very difficult move because for so long I think we've been um, communities siloed and competing against each other, and now it's it's a new it's a paradigm switch to go from that to we're going to partner with each other that we have to partner with each other, um, and we have to make sure that all these boxes are checked on that partnership and. That's that has been the most exciting part of of the um, Action Twenty Two, um, the Action Twenty Two Coalition, because we're <laughs> we've I, I you know I I naively thought that this was going to be a one and done like we could all come together for one meeting maybe two we could do one two follow up. John, I don't know. I think we're about ten meetings in at this point, aren't we? About ten I, meetings I in and so. trying to figure out um, how those um, how those partnerships work and. Um, at one of our workshop or, you know, our work uh, session meetings, um, somebody said, well, nobody's ever tried to do this before. Because I, I get confused over some barriers that are there. Like, there's like why is this a barrier? That doesn't make any sense to me. And somebody said, um, I think they told Brian. And I looked at Brian and, and, and he nodded when they said this. But, um, well, nobody's ever tried to do this before. And I was like, nobody's ever tried to do what before? And it was like, get all these competing ISPs and local governments and um, everybody who's on a different in a different um, uh, mile on their journey on their broadband journey, and they're all getting together and and supporting each other like Anne laid out. It's that's been pretty inspiring. So, um, for, so I'm going to ask um, one more question from where you're sitting. Are the funds so? Some of the concerns I've had are the funds enough funds for the entire the entirety of the state. Um, are they um, able to move fast enough for um, like that disbursement, disbursement and the build out? Um, like all of the stuff that I look at, I, I think this, I, I'm not entirely positive that, um, that we're actually going to get the job done this time. What do you, what do you both think? Do you want me to go first or do you want to take that first, Ann? I'll take it first. <laughs> I, you know, I'm not great with math. That's why I have a Bachelor of Arts, right? But I would think that uh, that amount of money could, wouldn't be able to reach everybody. Um, it sounds like a lot of money. It really does. But there's still so many areas that don't have that don't have the capability to have Internet. So, you know, it, we're talking so everything is so expensive anyway. So expensive, right? And, and giving Internet to everybody. And I don't really know. I mean, we could, we could spend a lot more money and still probably not have it done. I don't know what that amount is. I'm not suggesting the government throw more money at it, of course, but it, it doesn't seem like it's, it doesn't seem like it would be enough for, for what the goals are to me. Yeah, I, I would, I would echo that. that it, it's not enough. Uh, even if you're looking at it close to a billion dollars here between these, these two pools of money, uh, that's not enough to get it done. Uh, there are even some other, challenges we may face uh coming up with CDOT and some right away issues that, that that may make it more expensive to deploy fiber out in those areas um this is going to do a lot we can get a lot of those people in a little bit more dense areas we can get them hooked up and we may be able to get some of those people hooked up in a high 
hybrid solution, you know, where we get fiber to the tower, and then from there we get them on a good high-speed wireless system. Uh, but there's still going to be some of these very rural, remote areas that aren't going to get it through this funding mechanism or through this round. But it will... especially with the, the challenges of not overbuilding the ones here in the next five years, five six years. But it's going to be an improvement. This is going to help improve. But yeah, it'll it'll take it a little way. Yeah. Let me um, do two things. Will you explain to our listeners what you mean by overbuild? Uh, as far as overbuilding on the the yeah, the, most people don't. If you're not in the telecom, um, you don't know what that means. Okay, so uh, over overbuilding is so if there's uh, somebody already has facilities in there, so. You've got a cable here, underground, aerial, whatever it is. Overbuilding it means you're putting another cable alongside of it. So you've got two competitors right next yep. to each other. That would be overbuilding. And, uh, and it increases an cost. It, and yeah. Uh, yeah. If there's a cable TV company in a town and CECOM comes in and we decide we're going to try to put fiber into all those uh, rather than, than having the, the coaxial cable, uh, we're overbuilding the, the cable TV company. That makes sense. So I was really glad you brought up um, CDOT. So, um, and I'll kind of give you some, everybody, our listeners, some background on this. We're going to do a deep dive on that when it's me and you. Oh, we're going to do a deep dive on that when it's just Brian and I. So, um, so we'll go, we'll go over that because it's an, it's an interesting and important thing to to talk about. And we do, it is kind of a long thing. Yeah, Um, Yeah, that's. It's a it's a bit of a topic on that one, so I'm glad to see you guys are going to do that. It is, it is. Um, so, yes. <laughs> so um, along. So let me let me back up really quick. Um, so it's not going to get the job totally done, and and the governor's order was 99. percent What percentage do you think uh, realistically that um, these efforts and this money? Um, how how far are we going to get? Eighty-five percent, seventy-five percent. I don't have a good feel for the real number right now. The states done the best they could, especially getting some of the numbers from federal agencies uh, on what they consider served. Yeah. Um, I, I think this number could get us up and in, well into the mid nineties. Uh, right now, they're it's overstated how many people really are served in Colorado. I can tell you from this corner of the state. Just because I, I know what's where here and who has what, right? It, 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 these people aren't served, uh, it, it, and that's a whole other story in itself. Sort of like the CDOT story and the mapping stories. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, interest. It's been the best interest, but it's just been hard to execute something like that at a national level and to get good, accurate data um, to into that. Uh, it's it's. It's more complex than one would think uh, to make that happen. So, especially when it changes every six months and what the, the expectations are uh, to turn in. So, um, with that, um, my guess is uh, if I just had to take a wild guess, I'm going to say we can get it to 95 ish percent. And in my opinion, another good solution might be for some of those people. A Starlink type solution is right. a great solution for that. Even if the state comes out with some kind of a program to help offset the high cost of that, of it, one, the installation, two, maybe the monthly fees on that. It might be money better spent, at least in the near term, to get those people something now. And, yeah. uh, you know, in that, that last few percent, 
get them something like that, and uh, it may be less to get them uh, a satellite connection there than than getting fiber or a fixed wireless out there, at least short term. Right. Yeah. No, I totally agree, and I, I um, we've had that discussion internally as well. Mm-hmm. Is um, what's what's the best, and that's the big question. What's the best use of the money? And when you're talking the numbers of people that um, they would serve, you, you kind of have to set um, a few other things um, aside and, and and come up with those kinds of solutions. And that, that signals to us that you're genuinely concerned about actually delivering um, to, to everyone rather than um, doing great big build-outs and spending money on you know, what would be an overbuild, which is, is a waste of money in my opinion. Um, mm-hmm. Just strictly, in my opinion, it's a waste of money. Um, but those kinds of things. So I appreciate that. So um, any, so ninety five percent. That's pretty darn good. Yeah, and I think three percent of the five percent. If we got to there's the math. <laughs> if we've got to ninety five percent, there's five percent left. Three percent of the five percent probably don't want broadband anyway. You know, I, I think it's generally <laughs> it's generally about three to five percent are have want to have nothing to do with it. So. 90, I would count 95% as almost 100% when it comes to this. Yes. I, yeah. And, and I think the, the governor's, uh, the, the order he put out for the 99%, he wants available, not necessarily a take rate yeah. of 99%, yeah. but he, he wants, if that, that location is available for it. So 10 years down the road, if somebody that, uh, that didn't want it moves out and somebody moves in there that does yeah. want it, it's available to them. Uh, you know, it, interesting. This it just made me think of something here. Um, I was just talking to somebody in one of the small communities down this area. They recently moved here from Alaska. Mm-hmm. Uh, when they were looking to move out of there, their job was made remote so that they could go remote anywhere. They just have to work in the time zone uh, of the Alaska time zone. So they looked and said, hey, this Lahana, Colorado has fiber here and fiber hoods. They worked very closely with Seacom to find a house for sale that was within the fiber hoods that, that they met. That, they, that, that family moved here and they're actually looking at getting some more people. So this is great. You ought to move down here to bringing more people in uh, <laughs> so that they can work remotely, you know, some, some of their coworkers. So again, it's. Uh, I think that could be really good for this corner of the state. That could be a real economic development. Yeah, yeah, it is. We agree. We agree. Well, uh, John and Anne, thank you both for for being on the show today. Um, if there was anything that you uh, would really like, and, and I would like both of you to answer this, if there's anything you'd really like the decision makers on both the local and state level to to know and understand, what would it be? Well, I could, I could start with that. I think that they need to understand that how, how impactful it can be to have great internet for some people. Obviously, we've talked about jobs and we've talked about small businesses, entrepreneurs, people doing things that maybe differently after COVID, that some people being able to see a specialist uh, with a medical visit um, that they wouldn't be able to see here. I mean, you know, we travel for our, our specialty visits and, and maybe we wouldn't have to. Maybe you do want to see somebody in person, but to that person who really cannot get out, um, I think that would be so impactful to have better internet. So I think to bring internet to small rural communities like ours, and especially when you have a, an aging population, and if we were able to get them 
good internet and they were able to get those those tech skills and they could meet with doctors. I mean, how much better would that be to see a specialist for something that you have than to have to go to your family doctor and just kind of hope for the best? And I think, you know, it's important, you know, we, we tie that business aspect in with it and the economic aspect in with it. But, you know, healthcare is so very important and we're seeing smaller areas struggle to keep specialists and to keep doctors in areas just because of the, the you know, right now we don't we don't really have enough doctors from from what we understand. So it's a big piece. It's a big piece. And when a doctor can sit um, in front of a camera like you and I are talking and, and see more people, then this more people helped. And so I, I think that would be enormous, gargantuan for this whole piece for them to know that. Oh, absolutely. And the education side of it too. So healthcare and education, both in addition to the, the economic. John, what about you? So for me, the, the biggest piece on this, that the state and local could, the challenge we're going to face. So let's just say we're at 80% right now. Again, I'm just throwing out numbers. If we're at 80%, we want to get this to 95%. That 15% is pretty expensive comparatively. Mm -hmm. So when a grant requires a 25% match, Mm -hmm. it still often will not make a business case. Uh, If you're talking, uh, it's just around numbers out here again, $50,000 a mile to get somebody connected at a 25% match. um, You do the math, you'd have to be charging that person, those people, over a hundred dollars a month just to cover the cost to, to depreciate that part of it. You know, that's an actual cost that business has to do that. So we need to find ways to get assistance on those matches, either, uh, for maybe state can throw something in, uh, aside from the other money or local or, or other options, how to come up with that match money to make it so that it's feasible to, to build out to those people. And for the record, we are officially 82% connected in Colorado. People that have okay. access to broadband, or it's it's eight. Well, a little less than that. It's eighteen point one percent do not have access to broadband here in Colorado. So, there, John, you were pretty close. Yeah, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna guess that. Yeah, that that number the the real number is probably closer to sixty five percent. Yeah, based on what I've seen in the maps. Uh, if if that's the number there. Yeah, and that I was kind of bringing that up because I've never seen an accurate map. And I've seen multiple maps that are supposed to be accurate that look completely night and day different on them. Yeah, so exactly. And, and another thing with the uh, healthcare providers, medical professionals, um, what the hospitals are finding that people that live in an urban population, so the big cities, they enjoy telehealth, and rural people do not enjoy telehealth. So I think you're going to see this big push <laughs> to send doctors out to rural parts and say, "Look, your cost of living's down." Um, you don't have to live in the big city and you could see the local population there and telehealth into like Denver or wherever else. Mm -hmm. And that, that seems to be a trend that's starting right now. So it's good for rural Colorado have broadband. You might get doctors. Right. Yes. Right. So we, we saw that when we were looking at, um, the, uh, veteran services. Um, yeah, they're already doing yeah. that. So, so that's, um, and it's a, it's a great model, um, that's working that we're seeing. Well, Anne and John, thank you so much for being with us. Um, we appreciate all the work that you're doing in this space. It's not simple or easy. Um, and it, there's a lot of, a lot of heart and service in the community for you to do this. And we appreciate that you guys are doing this. So thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you, Brian, Sarah. Appreciate you guys uh, having us on here. All right. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. 
We have with us today the incomparable Lola Spradley. Lola Spradley is, everybody knows who Lola Spradley is, but they don't know why they know who she is. But she was the first woman speaker of the house for Colorado, and she is knowledgeable on every aspect of how this state runs. And so she has constantly been a resource for our communities and and truthfully for the state on all of these different issues and, and what it looked like then and what it looks like now. Uh, and so we asked her to be on, and she generously accepted, to be on the Action 22 Broadband Committee because we knew that the lift that we were undertaking and trying to make sure all of these things come together in a way that finally gets the job done and also delivers broadband to the end user in Colorado happens. So Lola, welcome. Um, we appreciate you so much. Can you uh, let us know a little bit why everybody um, knows who you are, but they don't know how you you know, because it's been uh, much further reaching than just the legislature. Well, thank you very much for this opportunity. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about an issue that I think is important. And it's important to me because I grew up in rural Colorado and went and, and you know, being a, coming up on a farm family, you look at the world differently. You look at the world as can do, let's identify, let's make, you know, but it's hard. It's hard work. And I get that. I spent 29 years in the telecom industry uh, during the time when the vestiger, which most people don't even remember now, but anyway, they, and I worked in most every department except the business office. I left telecom, went into the legislature, and since and was term limited out of there and, and had a wonderful experience and did get to be Speaker of the House, which is a true honor to be elected by your peers. And the public, and since then, uh, public service kind of gets in your blood, and I have become the head of Werfano County Economic Development. And I can't even tell you how many years, whether it's five or six, it doesn't matter. And uh, I'm now currently uh, the treasurer of the Spanish Peaks Regional Hospital Board. I'm on the Urban Renewal Authority uh, for Walsenburg, and uh, I'm the lay leader at my church, and I'm a wife and a mother. So, you know, I kind of touch a lot of buttons with all of that kind of stuff. But public policy and making public work is work, okay? You have to do the drill. You have to do the work. And so that's kind of my story. <laughs> so basically you're relaxing and enjoying retirement and not being busy at all. <clears throat> yeah, everybody says I fail retirement and I don't get paid. Yep. <laughs> I, I, I failed, uh, re- you failed retirement for sure, but you, um, haven't failed uh, all those that you serve and you've, mm-hmm. and you've done it, uh, all the way you, you'll, you'll be doing it till you're not here anymore. And I'm sure. So we have had, uh, lots of conversations. We, we wanted you to be on our broadband committee because you bring, um, the perspective of both sides, both this government side and, um, the economic development side, the and the business side. So all the sides of it, you know what's going on. You have done a tremendous work in Werfano County to drive the the deployment of broadband down there, and it was. I, I know everybody. Um, I'm sure that everybody was like, "Oh, this is going to be easy for you, Lola." When they when they said, or you know, no problem, Lola's got this. We don't have to worry about getting broadband down here anymore. It was super super easy, right? 
not so much. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, you always have those who it's never happened. It's never going to happen. We, you know, that you know, Werfenau County is a poor county. Yada da yada da yada. Okay, um, you have to communicate. You have to set a vision. You have to not accept the negatives. You have to work with these people, not ignore them. Can't ignore them. Right. You got to work with them. You got to educate them. You got to show them you got a plan, that you know how to do this, that you can create results. If they just give you a little opening that you can drive results. We started out trying to get broadband in La Vida with Jade Communications and didn't go well the first round. We got a plan B, which was fine. It was a plan B. Then we got a grant to do the Highway 12 project. Then Levita says, oh, maybe we want to rethink our position. So then we got that. Now we have another grant to finish up there. Why is that important? It's important because you have to build the relationships. You have to build the communication. You have to show people you have a plan. You have sustainability. You're not just a flash in the pan. If it doesn't happen in six months, you're gone. You know, you have to keep working at it. It's not easy, but it's doable. It's doable if you just, and, you know, people, you know, you meet with, you meet with everybody. You don't just be exclusive about meeting with those who agree with you. You got to meet with everybody. You got to communicate, 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 build relationships, build respect. And uh, and it can happen. Yeah. Is it hard in rural Colorado? Yes. So is it, is it, is it harder here than I think in other places? Probably because of the economics and so the distances. It's all of those things are um, not readily apparent to some of the people we work with. But tell us what the status is, knowing um, the difficulties down there. What's the status of broadband um, right this minute? Okay, um, we have uh, broadband in uh, going up Highway 12 to the Kachara Village and to uh, the all the. Uh, little subdivisions and stuff on the way. We have uh, if supply chain ever gets itself fixed, we will be cooking up people. The whole town of Levita has the conduit laid. And so everybody will have the ability to have gigabit service and all of that area. Then we then uh, as soon as the supply chain and we get through the process, we just got the grant to finish. And for people not that don't know, but a couple of pretty decent, I think it's 700 houses up, at, you know, further north or further south and do that. And we're working on the planning to uh, to reach some of the northern part of the county. So you just, you know, once you once you get success in one, you don't stop. You start working on success for the next area and you kind of divide it. We wrote a broadband plan several years ago, put it in writing, socialized it, took it around, but it's happening. It's happening. Uh, and it is, and it's amazing. And and uh, despite the, the joke I made earlier, not very many people um, thought it could happen, and, and uh, I don't know how many people um, besides you and, and your um, team would have been brave enough to even try. So 
specifically, what were some of the barriers, some of the struggles that you really had um, to overcome? Um, if you could give us a couple of examples. Okay. Um, in Werfano County is one of the poorest counties. We're now the second poorest. We've removed from the poor lowest. <laughs> right? We're now the second poorest county. So progress, right? So uh, uh, getting the match, getting the partnerships, getting the uh, getting the access, getting the access to create this. You know, you have uh, local governments um, have their own view of how they operate in that governmental entity. And you have to work through the governmental process and you have to understand it's a process, but people get discouraged sometimes. Right. By the local, local government. And I'm not beating up on anybody. I'm just saying they have their ordinances, they have their rules, they have their process, and it can be overwhelming. And there's usually a good, there's a usually good and reasonable reason for that, right? That they have their own process because they might have a, they might have a different, um, geography. They might have a different footprint than some other counties. And that's why, you, you have to go, okay, Werfano County is this animal, and even if it's an adjacent county, it's not going to be exactly the same. Oh, no, each each group has its own personality and has its own touch points right. Okay, right. about how they want things to proceed and how they want to be included and, and how the, what their process is. And so you just have to figure that out. I mean, it's kind of like being a lobbyist, which I was for a while. you got to figure out you know, you, you got to talk to each member and figure out what their issues are, what things are going on, how how can you, um, you know, it, most of the time it's education. Right. Okay. It's education, giving them the information to feel comfortable with the decision that you're asking them to make. Okay. And, and so, and, and being comfortable with the rest of the players in the process. So it's, you know, the whole world, I always say the whole world's relationships. Okay. You know, it's you've got to build those relationships and not just, you know, uh, hit and run. Right. You know, and, and so I don't know if that answers your question or not. Does do you think that, um, you know, starting this out, it, it's kind of a uphill battle, right? It takes years and planning and building those relationships. But once you hit a benchmark or have a success story, do you feel that momentum grows where it's easier to get the next one accomplished and then the next one and the next one? Somewhat, somewhat. You still have the same steps, okay? You still can't shortcut any of the process, okay? And so you have to bring the community along with you. And that, and in rural counties, I'm going to make a statement that somebody might argue with me, but if you have a town meeting and say you want everybody to come to be informed, we just did one on a couple of things um, in you might get 20 people. Mm -hmm. You might get 30. You might get five. Okay. So you can't just communicate by saying, okay, well, we had a public meeting and everybody that yeah. showed up loved it or hated it. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I mean, there are quick fixes. Okay. Right. You have to be dedicated. I started working on this five years ago. I said, if I can get broadband here, it's a game changer. It's going to bring business. It's going to bring vitality. And we're, you know, a, a tourist uh, economy. 
not totally. Ag is still huge and we love it, but it's has a, the second biggest contributor to the economy is, is tourism. So you've got to convince people that they can make money you know, in that environment and how you expand the shoulder season and how you do that. Well, broadband does it. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. For sure. But you, but it's not, it's not something you could touch and feel. Yeah. Okay. You can't say if I build this building, then everybody's going to go there and everybody's going to love it. Okay. It's not that kind of infrastructure. And so you have to, you have to bring people along. You have to, yeah. you know, because people thought I was crazy, but they're now enjoying the benefits yeah. depending on where you live. Does that make sense? Yep. Yes, it does. So we've talked to, um, to a great extent and I'll, we'll finish our conversation with a question, but, um, for you, but, um, the, you know, there's no quick fixes. There's no easy steps. However, right now with the way the funding is, we have to move at light, um, at light speed comparatively. So there's very short windows on, on putting those, these out. There's, there's, um, struggles with, um, supply chains and then um the human resource the the people who would go after those grants and the people who would um you know that's just in very very short supply here if you so here's my question with all of those in mind what would you um what would you want decision makers especially on these guidelines to know and understand with regard to us getting the job done of um deploying deploying um broadband in our region I think uh, there's a number three. There's about four or five kind of okay. points to yep. make on yep. this. Okay, yep. one is don't underestimate the difficulty of the match. Okay, because you're because it's doing this is big dollars, especially in rural America. This is big money. Okay, you ask somebody to come up with a half a million dollars for uh, to feed, you know an area it's a big deal okay it's a big deal so the match is a big deal the other thing is coordinating this with other projects in the region and in the area making sure you have the coordination done and the communication so that you can take advantage of size and proximity and stuff and one of the things that i keep talking about to people is we're going to you know get to the governor's goal of 99 percent we're going to have to have some interconnection. We're going to have to have some platform discussions. We've got to be, not everybody can put um, fiber down 160 to get to the Western Slope, to get to the Eastern Plains. We're going to have to have some interconnection agreements. We need, you know, and I kind of worked on that, you know, a long time ago uh, when this was an issue, but we're going to have to have some way to understand how we interconnect with each other because it makes no sense for every company that wants to serve the Western Slope to have to go down 160 when we when there's already fiber down part of 160, we ought to interconnect. Right. And, right. and we need to figure out how that works. It should be kind of boilerplate at this point. There should be certain things that everybody, you know, if you have this, you have this, and you, you know, comply this, that that's how the interconnection agreement would work. We have a thing called pole attachments on rural electric poles. It's not standardized, okay? And it's not easy to, to get 
all of that in place. If there was some, if the state wanted to do something, they could be working on how we standardize the interconnection. How do we optimize what people want to do as they give the grants and they do that? How are we going to interconnect? How are we going to provide things to other people? And and how are these facilities and where are we going to get the workers to put all this in in a two-year time frame? Right. And get right. And get this done. Where are these workers coming from? Where's the fiber coming from? Where are the fiber plows coming from? Who's doing the interconnection? You, you know, you, you assume the ISPs are going to be contacting the customers and making arrangements for them to sign up and sign on. But some of these people are two miles from the middle mile. You know, I mean, it's it's there needs to be more uh, coordinate and the permitting process. Right. And you have to right. go to every jurisdiction and go through their permitting process. And there's no real uh, agreement on what yeah. that looks like. You know, uh, you know, what what are the requirements? What are the bonding? What are the uh, make, you know, uh, restore to normal requirements in each county or each jurisdiction? You know, it sounds kind of mundane, but it's real. It can hold a project up for six months to a year. Okay. Longer than and we that have sometimes. two years. We have two years to, to complete get this done. This. Yeah. So it's you know, so you know, I appreciate everything the state is doing and getting organized and being able to do all this and the short window on the grants. I understand they're trying to move the money fast, but there are some other things that are making it hard to figure out what you're going to apply for and how you're going to make this work and do it in the two year window. And so, uh, you know, all doable, we're going to get it done, but it's not going to be without some pain until we get some of these issues addressed. Right. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Lola, thank you so much for being with us. Um, we could actually talk about this all day and, and we're going to do some follow up, um, as some of those grant dollars come out. Um, but, uh, you're an inspiration to all of us and we appreciate you so much. Well, thank you, and I appreciate the opportunity, and I just, hopefully, my last thing is don't give up. Just keep <laughs> taking incremental progress. Make incremental progress. Yes. Don't give they... up. This will happen. Oh, oh absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's the best advice of all. Thank you, Lola. Okay. Have a good day. Thanks. We want to welcome to the show CEO of Aristata. Carlin Walsh. Carlin is uh, been running and working on uh, broadband deployment in one of the most difficult geographically areas of the state, and so he's come up uh, against uh, a lot of a lot of struggles there. Uh, of course, they're headquartered over there in um, Salida uh, and in Chafee County, and so if you know Colorado, you know what a lift it can be, um, and they've been. Uh, Aristotle right now is delivering on some of the things that we've been wanting to see happen for probably the last 30 years. So Carlin, will you start just by telling us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about your company? Sure. Uh, myself, um, I'm formerly the, uh, uh, I still own Elevation Beer Company. I started that back in 20, 2012. And, um, and then about Three years ago, two and a half years ago, I was approached about the opportunity to lead uh, what was then Colorado Central Telecom, um, now Aristotle Communications. And in July of 2022, almost a year ago, 
we uh, closed on the acquisition of Colorado Central Telecom. And since then, we have been running Colorado Central Telecom, recently rebranded it in March to Aristata Communications. Um, Aristata is the Latin name of the uh, Rocky Mountain bristlecone pine, which grows ubiquitously through our service territory. Our service territory is Lake, Chafee, Custer, Fremont, and Werfano counties, Western Fremont, um, Werfano and Custer counties. We have over 20 14ers um, within our five county territory. Um, it is all solid granite. <laughs> it is. Um, we also work closely with Sangre de Cristo Electric Association, which is widely known for being one of the most rural electric co-ops in the state of Colorado. They have about seven subscribers per mile or seven members per mile. So roughly speaking, that's about what we're working with. It's about seven subscribers per per mile. Wow. Um, it is very rural out here. We have uh, our most densely populated areas are the town of Leadville, Buena Vista, Salida, Pontius Springs, and Westcliff. Um, we also serve all the way down to Levita. So we have uh, some some beautiful, beautiful areas, but very uh, difficult <laughs> terrain. So but we're proud of it. You know, yeah, that's lit- what we stand for. Literally surrounded by mountains and rocks everywhere. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So one of the things that I think people don't often think about if they don't live um, in those rural areas is that broadband is more than an economic driver, more than an education and telehealth. It's actually a safety issue. Um, and that's one of the big things that you that you guys focus on. Yeah, uh, you know, obviously, like a lot of telecom providers, um, we uh, offer VoIP phone service, and for a lot of people, that is their only form of communication. There's no cell service where they live. There's no copper. Um, it's VoIP over a terrestrial fixed wireless link. So um, for some of our customers, it's really a crucial crucial thing. Um, pretty. Uh, interesting or relevant story, I suppose. I've also been on the board of the Chafee County Economic Development Corporation for over 10 years. And in 2010, um, the then CEO of Mount Princeton Hot Springs came to the board of the EDC and said, there's this thing called Netflix, and it requires seven megs down. And he says, where in this county can you get seven megs down? <laughs> and everybody looked at each other. We were like, what the hell is Netflix? One, what the hell is a meg? Two, and nowhere in this county, three, can you get that? And so that's actually how Colorado Central Telecom got started. They had already started in Crestone. Crestone had zero access to internet. The then mayor of Crestone in 2011 got Colorado Central Telecom started by getting a wireless link from Alamosa brought in to Crestone and they got them high-speed internet. Our executive director of the EDC worked with the uh, founder of that company to get a wireless link over Methodist Mountain, which then allowed us to bring internet to Monarch Ski Area and Mount Princeton Hot Springs. And that's how that story all... So now here we are, 5,000 subscribers later and five counties later, um, here we are. So that might not sound a lot if uh, to um, some of our listeners, but five thousand subscribers in five counties is a tremendous is a tremendous lift. So we we got to know you um, fairly recently, and I say we Action Twenty Two got to know you fairly recently. Um, 
and we have uh, you're on our Action Twenty Two Broadband Committee um, because you're trying to drive um, of the final build out per the governor's order, and also you guys wanted to do this anyway, especially with the um, the pots of money that are coming out, and there's several, um, and we won't get into that part of it. Um, some of your colleagues like. Uh, um, Wendell Pryor, who have been in this for quite a while, um, has been a really strong voice on that. But there's a whole lot of of struggles and barriers to overcome beyond what you just described as the as the the most um, obvious ones. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, some of the frustration that you've had in the last little bit as you're as you're trying to plan out for um, for this next big build out? That's a that quite frankly is a crucial one. Sure. And you're talking about uh, our Monarch Pass project that we're we're aiming for. Um, So we are, well, do you want me to to talk about the, do you want me to back up and talk about the grant funding first, I suppose? Yeah, talk about the grant funding first and then how you're trying to utilize that for the Monarch Pass project. Because the Monarch Pass project, it it is a crucial project. It is a crucial project. um, And it's a crucial project that requires grant funding Mm -hmm. um, because, excuse me, because it does not have a tremendous number of passings. It's not um, a densely populated area. So the business case for getting fiber to the top of Monarch Pass is a really, really tough business case to make. Right. And that, that grant funding is there to close that ROI gap that exists on doing a project like that. So right now we're in the middle of what's called the Capital Projects Fund grant application period. Um, the Capital Projects Fund is ARPA, which is COVID era um, ARPA money, mm-hmm. um, the American Rescue Plan. And it provides the state of Colorado with about $170 million, a little more than $170 million um, for a variety of projects that are focused on connect- connecting anchor, community anchor institutions. Right. Um, this could include um, this could include power facilities, water treatment facilities, um, and then obviously homes. So we have identified and we are focused on working with community anchor institutions and with the community at large on getting fiber to the top of Monarch Pass. This includes working with groups like the, the owners of Monarch Ski Area. Um, there's also a Colorado, a firefighter, wildland firefighter training camp called the Colorado Fire Camp in Maysville. They turn out over a thousand wildland firefighters a year. Um, they have very limited connectivity and the ponderosas keep growing. So eventually they will no longer be able to have a terrestrial fixed wireless link connecting them. Um, and fiber is literally the only solution to keep them connected because they do a lot of online trading as well. And then just running the facility. Um, there's additionally um, hydroelectric power plants on that uh, going, up the pow- going up the pass. And then there's the communities of Maysville and Garfield that um, all need connectivity. Um, the, the challenges, however, with it is that, you know, one, the the biggest challenge is that in the ISP world, things are moving at light speed. Nope. Seriously, no pun intended, but we are moving quick and government does not move quick. It moves very slow and, 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 you know, partly it has to, which is fair, but when you have a slow moving government and fast moving internet service providers, and then you bring in this keep of money to get more fiber built out, it just creates this very frenetic environment that creates a lot of confusion as well. And, um, 
and a lot of aligned but competing interests come into the mix. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we are the local telecom provider. We feel that we're the best positioned to tackle projects like getting fiber to the top of Monarch Pass. And the concern is that when you bring in this much money, that you're also opening the doors up for outside for outside investment to come in, which is which is welcome as long as the outside investment is aligned with your priorities of getting the community at large connected and not cherry picking just the most densely populated areas. So, no, uh, and we agree. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. it absolutely does. And and what we've seen is is. Um, efforts toward uh everybody's looking at this money and they're thinking it's a huge amount of money for telecom it's not a huge amount of money it's it's probably not even the requisite amount of money needed to to do all of the jobs but um we're seeing people who or organizations or departments who are trying to create new revenue sources for themselves on this and the part that's difficult is the ISPs um, our committee, some of these other folks are, their objective is to get the fiber out to those who don't have it right now, those individuals, the end user. And what you just described is, um, it is very, uh, it, it's doing that for, for, th- um, uh, those communities, but it's part of a much, much bigger picture. So, um, how have you tried to, how, what have you done or how is, um, navigating at the speed of business and the speed of government, which are two wildly different things? How have you been navigating that? Um, well, focused on, so the, the, the state broadband office and the federal government, um, as well have all said, to apply for this funding, we want to see partnerships. They haven't really done a great job on defining what partnerships mean. Right. They've said, we want partnerships. So Aristotle Communications has been focused on working with a variety of community partners from private businesses to public entities. We've, we continue to attempt to work with our local governments, our counties um, included, there is, I think, some guidance that is needed from the state level on what constitutes a competitive process. So um, I'm aware that a couple of uh, counties and districts are running competitive processes for things as simple as a letter of support, which we read and believe could be con- con- uh, constituted as a, um, as a partnership for projects getting done. Um, right now, the way the capital projects fund is laid out timeline wise, the application closes on August 20th or 21st, and um, it opened on June 20th. If a county, <laughs> if a county is running a competitive process just to get a company a letter of support, um, that really condenses the timeline mm-hmm. that you have to get a a capital projects fund application done because now we're running this request for information to get this competitive process going. And then we have to complete an application for the capital projects fund after that. And, um, and I, I, I think the state would um, be wise to provide more guidance to the counties and to the special districts on what constitutes and what's needed for a competitive process. 
if there's no dollars necessarily being exchanged and if there's um if the if the private entities are bringing creative solutions to the table and the county isn't being approached by other private entities and it's the local entity <laughs> that is doing it it right. just seems pragmatic logical and reasonable to get in to get in and start working on a project together to get it done because the time is ticking man we are we we aristotle communications is is crunched for time as it is without doing an rfi um let alone adding an rfi into this process now so let me let me put um I'll pause on you for just a second because sure. I think there's a lot of our listeners who just heard what you said but aren't entirely sure why that's the case. So I'm gonna I'm gonna give you um, one example of why there's that struggle. So we have sunshine laws in Colorado which require um, the these decision makers um, on the local level to have a, a degree of transparency. That means that they have to have um, public meetings for their decision-making process. That's the law in Colorado. So that means that you have to... Um, you have to announce the public meeting. You have to have the um, the majority of your commissioners there. Um, there's, and, and just depending, it varies, but very slightly on how long that public meeting has to be posted. And then there's no um, there's no provisos on how long that they have to make that decision. So all of that has to be done in in the public light. That sunshine policy. We're talking about that you have the the counties or the individuals like you have to go through that process. We've heard from uh, Lola Spradley already that you have to go through that process. That that process is slow. It's a process that's required by law. Um, but now you've got guidelines and executive orders um, and things like that that make doing that process that legal process. Um, incredibly difficult. And, and when I look at that, um, for our, our committee, for, for folks like you who are working on this, that's just one of the struggles and barriers that they're, that they're facing right now in light of very, very tight timelines. So I just wanted everybody to kind of understand, um, on a very, uh, one-on-one level, this is what you're facing right now. Basically, if you need something from the County, you know, that's 30 days minimum. Like, I think it's fair to say it's like two weeks to 30 days to get anything. So say one more time what those deadlines are, Carlin, that you're up against with that in mind. So the, the capital projects fund application opened June 20th, 2023, mm-hmm. and closes August 20th, 2023. And, um, you know, the RFIs, which all, all these are is a request for information to enter into an arrangement some form of a partnership that has not been defined either what that arrangement is, but you enter into this arrangement with the, with that public entity, be it the County or a special district. You then are awarded that ability to enter into that and enter into that agreement with them. Let's say in late July at this point, we now have 23, 24 days to complete a capital projects fund application, which is due August 21st. So to Sarah's point on a board meeting, you know, I think the way that a lot of private entities would prefer to see this done 
is allow presentations by, especially by your locally owned ISPs, allow presentations during work sessions for for this to be done in a public open forum for everyone to discuss, consider the merits of each proposal in in an open setting as well. And then in the next board meeting, you can make a decision. Mm-hmm. Um, right. I, I, I feel that, you know, that may not be the most ideal solution, but given the, the time constraints we have right now, I feel like it is um, the most prudent solution or a conversation around something like that should be happening at the state level yeah. for guidance for these communities, right. given the time constraints. And I also don't feel that pushing... I don't feel that pushing the grant application deadline out is much better of a solution just simply because the clock is ticking on when bead money is be, is going to yeah. become available. Right. So um, again, for the listeners really quick, there's several pots of money and what, uh, and we'll go into this. Um, Brian and I are going to go do a deep dive on this, but there's several pots of money. We know that um, the, the fund that, um, Carlin just laid out is one fund, but then now we've got another one that just came out literally this week. We were on the call on our action 22 broadband call when that was released, in fact, on Monday. Um, and so this, and so now we, those things have to line up. What's incumbent upon the state is to return in, in 60 or 90 days, um, their plan for how they're going to disperse the money because that's the other part um, because this is federal money they have to have their plan on how that money is going to be dispersed mm-hmm. and so they're going to have to look at not only what the first pot of money and that plan how that looks but now the second part and I think um, um, if they have to have it done in I think it's maybe 90 days which means that they have to create the plan the guidelines and so forth for for everybody to apply to based on what's already going on, what's already in. Um, and if they're going to return that in 90 days, that gives a very short window yeah. um, to, to you once again. And this is stuff that we've been working on for a really long time. So let's, let's leave it with this, Carlin. Um, there's a whole lot more to talk about. We are really, um, we know what, uh, what you're doing all day, every day to try to get this done and how important it is um, for a project like the Monarch Pass project. What would you, um, what would you like decision makers to know and understand? What is, if you could deliver a message to these decision makers, what would it be? I think going, going back to some earlier comments that we had just in the immediate, given the time constraints, we need to look at how we can utilize the capital projects fund money that's available um, apply for it, but position ourselves in, in a, in a manner to actually apply for it so that we're not turning in applications that are hastily put together in 23 days. I think we need to, we as a community, counties individually need to get creative, um, so that we can get this done expediently because time's ticking. Yeah. Um, and I think that, that at the state level, if the governor's office and or the broadband office, could provide additional guidance to the counties on how they can expedite these processes. Um, I think that would be extremely beneficial to the small and locally owned ISPs who are in good relationships and good communication with their county administrators and their counties. 
their county officials at large. They're already established. Um, they're already established relationships with work that's already been done. That's correct. That's right. correct. Right. Um, and then the last thing I would like to say is just recognize uh, the the immense hill that Brandy Reader and um, the broadband office are up up against right now. I mean, it's a tremendous amount of money. We have a ton of, I'm sure she's getting hit up by, by various providers every day. And I can only imagine the work she has right now and, um, and the governor's office as well. This is, uh, this is the most money. This is a generational amount of money coming our way for expanding broadband. And it's, it's a heavy, heavy lift to make sure it's deployed properly. So I, I commend them for, um, for jumping in with both feet and getting it done. And I think we just need to work together on how to get this done um, efficiently, effectively, and um, and get everybody, get everybody connected. Ninety nine percent by twenty twenty seven. Yep. Yep. It's a, it's uh, we're gonna work. We're gonna everybody's gonna do their best to get it done. Carlin, thanks so much, um, and uh, we we just appreciate you so much and what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Brian. Appreciate yeah. your time. All right. Thank you. All right. All right. Bye-bye. Bye bye. We welcome our our good partners um, Denise and Sal uh, to the to the show today. They have done a tremendous amount of work in a, in a lot of the spaces that we're talking about. But one of the key things that the Action Twenty Two Committee uh, Broadband Committee is trying to drive is that delivering uh, digital. Um, equity. So it's that broadband through that digital equity lens. And it's something that's been um, incredibly important to us. Um, Sal and I have been having um, this conversation for about a year and a half now because of the work that we did in the San Luis Valley to that, to that end. Um, but Sal ha- and Sal and his partner, Denise, have really um, picked this up. And so that's going to be the crux of what we talk about today. Um, and they've, they're a tremendous resource on this. But uh, I, I'd like them, uh, you both to introduce yourselves. Um, your your company, your organization, and then really we'll we'll dive into a little bit about on the path, but um, really how your partnership, um, how to do the partnerships, how to do the coalitions, why that's important now, but really how you're being of support to um, the other members of of our coalition or our our broadband committee. So Denise, let's start with you to introduce yourself a little bit about um, you've been in broadband or you've been working in this for quite some time. Um, can you tell us about you? And then Sal, we'll go to you. Um, thank you, Sarah. Um, I uh, have spent more than 20 years working in the net in the digital equity um, broadband uh, community space um, worked and nationally um, with the Shelby coalition with the Institute for local self-reliance with um, the uh, 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 other organizations along the lines um, I'm totally distracted by the dogs. Um, <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> We're good. We have a lot of dogs that come on our show. We do have a lot of dogs. So we it's, should, it's fine. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna do that at some point. We're gonna have all the dogs that have been on the show. Okay. Well, yeah. Of course, I told you as soon as I started talking, it would happen. So yeah. um, let me start over. Um, so I have more than 25 years' experience in the um, broadband and, and digital equity space. I've worked with um, was a founding member of the Shelby uh, Coalition, which is schools, healthcare, and libraries for broadband. 
I've worked with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I've worked with the FCC and the NTIA. I am one of very few people to, that can say that I actually am an NTIA, um, a two-time NTIA grant award uh, awardee, um, and have um, have worked in this space to deliver broadband kinds of pieces across the state for a long time. Thank you, Denise. Sal, tell us about um, all the work that you've been doing and have done. Okay, I guess uh, uh, with respect to the equity piece, because I know we need to have that focus, I guess I can go back to uh, the early 90s. Um, I was, I've done a lot of work in the area of what at that time was more diversity and multiculturalism. And so I began to work uh, in the southern part of the state, I was the director of the regional prevention center. So basically, we did all things prevention, and we got um, a significant amount of training and um, uh, capacity building, and what that all meant. There were five centers throughout the state. I managed Southern Colorado, so we worked with community-based organizations that would do uh, large-scale community development work, uh, prevention programming work. Uh, violence, crime, everything you can imagine. So a lot of that work was kind of the foundation. As you moved through that work and you looked at diversity and multiculturalism, uh, the equity the equity theory and how it evolved, evolved from that. And so one of the first areas that, that I worked in in the area of equity was uh, the health access arena where the, the equity and what that meant to health access uh, I developed some planning for uh, the Colorado Trust with certain communities. Uh, we looked at what equity meant for immigrant integration and what that meant. That included technology. It included everything within the landscape of integration, civic engagement, workforce development, everything. I, My company led the planning for nine communities of the 18 that were funded in the state of Colorado from, nine, from 2003 to 2011. Um, and at that point, the reason I'm saying this is this is where a lot of the equity theory really evolved. And then um, we did the equity plan for the community of Avondale. We got them funded. And uh, throughout all of this, we blended in some broadband planning and work. And that's where <laughs> Denise and I had met. Denise and I met maybe, I don't know, 20 years ago. And we collaborated on various projects and we looked at what this work meant to broadband back in 2003. Well, I did the, uh, the District 60 broadband plan for fiber, fiber optic network. From there, we did work in cybersecurity and kind of we, we looked at that and also kind of what that intersection is going to be when we looked at cybersecurity and broadband and now that's happening now. Um, so I guess uh, uh, with respect to equity, we, uh, we understand that it was going to get in the broadband space. So Denise and I began uh, looking at what that would look like over three years ago and begin to develop solutions for communities. Um, like Denise mentioned, we had uh, we authored the Adelante Connect project for around $3 million for CSU Pueblo, funded by NTIA. Uh, we got funding from the FCC to look at the affordable connectivity program and a community-based strategy for that. We got that funding. And so uh, we look we look at broadband 
uh, at least I guess I'd maybe look at it from a more uh, innovative way to really look at it more comprehensive. So we're able to see maybe uh, what are the good things that are happening right now with broadband and maybe what are some of the things that, that they may be missing and we really need to focus on, right? Because it's, it's new, all right? It's the first time anyone's ever developed a broadband plan for any for the state of Colorado. It's happening now, right? And so there are people that are there trying to do it, some with not much equity experience. So I think we can bring some of that wisdom to the table to really provide uh, some insight with respect to what equity means within the scope of broadband, with the scope of what it means. And I think I know Denise had mentioned that um, you know the piece that we're working on right now with the with uh, the internet exchange points. And I think if we look at, really look at equity, what does that mean to a region? Very significant. So, uh, and so I guess we're already going into the, to yeah, the discussion. Yeah, no, that's fine. I, I wanted to give some background to our listeners. Um, we have several people on our broadband committee that um, have been longtime partners with Action 22, and, and Sal Acuna is one of them. We also have uh, Lola Spradley and Wendell Pryor, um, and they've, they've been a part of this for a, a really long time, and that, that was they bring different expertise to the table, but we knew when we started to see all of this um, sort of um, coalesce into uh, into what we're looking at and the state of broadband in Colorado and the funding and so forth right now, um, Sal is is one of those that I went to and and uh, said we we need to have you you and Denise on the team um, for that for that very reason. So. Um, from a very basic level, um, the um, you you mentioned it earlier. Um, broadband deployment through a digital equity lens is a n- relatively new concept. So, will you talk about um, that a little bit? You just listed you've been working on this for for decades for for the equity you know defining the equity and and what that means. You've been working on that for decades, but um, it's fairly new, and it's and it's all of a sudden in very tight time timelines, um, a requisite for for moving forward. Um, so, will you guys just talk? Give us a give us a snapshot of of what the state of that is, and what that actually means compared to what some of the lip service. Because when a, and it's when it's just Sal and I, him and I dive deep into our our uh, our roots, and and we we get a little um we get a little passionate about this. So Sal, t- tell us a little bit about what we're talking about here. Well, like, I guess you know, uh, just the other day when we were talking about uh, the digital equity in our meeting. Um, you know that really represents it's it's a it's a huge area, mm-hmm. and we just within the target populations when some of these RFP all the RFPs have came out right now. Excuse me, these no fills for the granting operations. You look at some of the target audiences that you got to include. You got to include veterans. You got to include aging populations. You got to include the rural component. You know, individuals of language barriers, ethnic minorities. So consequently, there's a variety of of categories that has been there that are, are evolving in the definition of what you need to do with respect to broadband and digital equity. Uh, I can speak with my, with my passion, right? I'm from Southern Colorado. I'm from Pueblo. I've been working in the region since, since uh, 1988. Uh, and now I know I have a good idea of what is underserved. Uh, I'll speak with it from being a Latino, Hispanic, raised in an immigrant household, right? I know that population. 
the most underserved population in our region is the Hispanic, Latinx, Latino, however you want to categorize the population. And sometimes right now, it may be not something that is uh, talked about that much in broadband. Okay. And so all of a sudden, we're having to come up with a strategy. We're looking at a digital equity plan. We have ISPs providing solutions under the umbrella of not served and underserved and digital equity. And where I see a huge gap is that population is not at the table. Right. And that's in, in our region, Southern Colorado, that's the priority population. It's the largest that's- population of underserved. And yet there are counties from Pueblo, South San Luis Valley, that whole area, especially the predominantly Hispanic counties, of which there's about 13, it's in Pueblo, and it's and in the map, it's all underserved. So that's one of the things that um, you and I had talked about early on, that a lot of the guidelines and some of those things that we were seeing, even some of the proposals um, by agencies, organizations, or ISPs, did not include that, and so. Um, we, um, and, and the only ones that were, you know, you're yelling that this has to happen was you. And then action 22, this was, these are the only ones that have made this a top priority and, and, um, and we're the only ones I think that invited an expert like you to the table to actually drive that and discuss that. So that, this is what we're talking about when we're talking about, um, the importance of coalitions and, and so forth. So would you and Denise both um, talk a little bit about what that actually means? Because all of the, the NOFORs or the, the notices of, um, so we have to be careful with, uh, with acronyms. Um, we'll, we'll get real, when there. So the, the notice of funding opportunity is a NOFO. RFPs is a request for pr- proposal. Um, RFIs are requests for information. ROI is um, return on investment. These are all sort of the the, the short <laughs> things that we, we that we do um, that we talk about when we're so when we're talking about all of these things. So um, most of the the RFPs or any of this, they're wanting to see partnerships. They're wanting to see coalitions. They're wanting to see that there's been an adequate amount of consideration and collaboration, yet um, defining what they, what that expectation is has, has either been um, vague or slow um, in coming number one. And number two, um, Who's doing that? Who's driving those collaborations, and what is what does that look like? So, you guys, will you both give some um, some insight to to what we're talking about here? I think Denise Denise will provide a very sure good. sure. So Denise, we'll start with you, and then escape a broadband and house all to be able to really really hit that. Yeah. Um, so when we think of partnerships, um, we typically think of partnerships in our own like lanes, silos, maybe would be the right word. I'm an ISP. I think of, oh, I will partner with other ISPs or other whatever. In order to do digital equity and inclusion, it means you have to get out of your lane. And so we need to have connectivity that is affordable, reliable, and resilient. 
In other words, it's it'll grow. Okay. And what we've seen, especially in the southern part of Colorado, is that there is connectivity in on paper, but it isn't affordable for the communities that Saul has been talking about. And they do not have a connection to their household because it isn't really affordable to them and it isn't particularly resilient. Um, we do have programs like Lifeline and ACP and you get a 25 meg connection for $30. But if you're in Pueblo West, you get a gig for $65. So that $30, 25 meg, is almost a buck a meg, and a thousand meg for 65. It's not a very economically fair, equitable, or inclusive kind of thing. And it's very expensive, $30 for certain parts of the community. They can't afford it. So, so we don't have a good equity piece and it's across the country. And so the barriers not oftentimes are having that high speed connection. They don't have the same infrastructure development, but it's also because they people had to live without any connection. You don't know how to use it, even if you give it to them. Yeah. Right. Right. Now we have two problems. It's too affordable. Um, providers haven't developed the area to be high-speed, future-proof, reliable broadband. And, and even if we make the connection to the household, they need help catching up to be able to use things the way maybe you and I um, and, and even Pepper uh, are doing. Right. We're not. It, and that's, we owe it to our communities. A rising tide floats all boats. Right. We owe our communities to provide those economic opportunities. So, and, so Denise, you know, I, I, I'm glad you said it in the way you said it, because when we were working on the stuff in the San Luis Valley, what we found, um, Brian looked at uh, all the maps. We did a lot of research. We did a lot of, we did hundreds of interviews or hundreds of conversations Um and the thing that we um, that we really came to understand in a different in a different light when we did that was you're right the affordability piece is huge the um, and then if you're if you're struggling to afford um, you know thirty dollars or or fifty dollars a month let's say it's fifty dollars a month you're certainly going to struggle to have the device required but. But like you said, you said it really, I think you said it really brilliantly is that um, if they've been living without it for so long, they need to have an opportunity to catch up. And it, that's the digital literacy piece that's that's very difficult. And so we have to bridge those gaps. Um, and you and I have talked about the importance of, of libraries and, and those spaces. But the other thing that we discovered, and, and I know that you guys already know about this, but um, signing up for programs can be very scary for a lot of our most vulnerable population. Um, and it's because um, part of it is because um, 
the that literacy piece they don't you know know what information they can give and especially when you're talking about the senior population but the other population are are maybe um families of uh you know you've you've got workers but you've got undocumented or you've got um some of these the the populations that are are large in in the region but they're simply afraid to um, sign up for those programs, sign up for those things, um, those gap programs that would help them get connected. And that was why we were, when we were down there and we were, um, gifting the laptops, it was a no questions asked. We, we asked them to, you know, go through some liter or some digital literacy training in order to get a laptop. Um, but it's those kinds of partnerships that I think that we really have to push and define. Um, and so, so, um, can you guys, can either of you tell me or tell us about a partnership that you would like to see modeled throughout this um, effort on, on digital equity? Do you want to talk about Adelante Connect a little bit, Saul? Yeah. That, that's a good example of, of um, literacy and involving the community and the business. Yeah. I think I think we're, uh, this is the other one that connect. Um, when Denise and I uh, uh, began really researching what was going to be happening, we we had a sense that NTI would be doing something, and they put out the notice of funding opportunity. It was in uh, I believe July of two twenty one, and then uh, we got a hold of it. We looked at what they were what what was available, and we realized that the way they set it up allowed for some pretty unique opportunities for innovation, right? They had six particular categories of what they would fund all the under the umbrella of what all things broadband and what it meant, right? And they had it flow through a Hispanic serving institute or a minority communities uh, uh, educational system, right? So historically black or HSIs or Native American uh, institutions. And so the money had to go through them we realized that we sat down with CSU Pueblo, we moved forward with the proposal, and we got funded for $3 million. But what we did is we we pulled the funding. The funding had to go through CSU, but it's a very community-centric strategy. We have four community anchors, which are four community institutions strategically located in the Y zone, the underserved, impoverished area of Pueblo, which is 36 counties. Uh, that were already pre-identified by NTIA in this proposal. So we put together a strategy where we would create 36 census blocks, census tracts, census tracts. Yeah. And so within that, within the scope of, of, of public community. And so there are four anchor institutions. We have a digital literacy strategy. We had a digital navigation strategy. We're going to fund seven navigators. We're looking at, um, at a comprehensive approach to the city. Uh, it's, this project is a pilot project, so consequently we have two years to be able to show some type of proof of concept, and then hopefully we can build it. So it's a comprehensive approach to, to, to digital literacy. We incorporated the affordable connectivity plan within the scope of what we're doing. We're going to subsidize households, all those 200 households. We're going to be subsidized as far as their internet. Denise is putting together the strategy of the telecommunications side to make that happen. Okay, and so it's really comprehensive. And but like I said, we knew we could have that opportunity and showcase that because it, it was a pilot project. It's two years. And so we were funded. The feedback from them is one of the more unique proposals that they received. 
And so we've had nothing but good feedback to this point right now. They've been using some of our reporting. Uh, Denise led the charge on the reporting. Her and I have been kind of laying that out until we get ready to launch everything. And they've been utilizing our work as a template uh, throughout the country and other NTIA-funded sites. So, you know, we're just ready to move forward on that. But that's a good example of a very comprehensive approach to what digital literacy and equity means to a community. And so we have a strong evaluation component, really strong evaluation component. So it's very, very comprehensive. So, uh, so how are you, um, how are you working? And I know that you're working with um, the members of, of uh, the action 22 broadband committee, but how are you working with um uh, these folks on their proposals to make sure that they're um, that th- that they have that strong equity component into proposals that are going on um, that with the state and um, now with now what with what we we know as the bead funds. Bead funds have just been announced, right? Like in six. Or it seven was days. yeah, it was Monday. Yeah. So um, I, I would say that we are. Um, open to working with others at this point um, and helping with that. Um, we don't have any bead-specific pieces yet because we haven't really seen the state's application for bead. We've only been given the award funding amounts for each state, mm-hmm. and now the state has to develop the application requirements. So. So, yeah, so we talked about that, but it, it bears repeating, um, and stop me when I'm wrong, Denise, but what happens is they have, um, they have the, uh, the, the federal, the federal pots of money, um, they say, here's what it is, here's what the award is, but then the state is required to return to them with their plan for how they would disperse that. So that, so that makes it a lot, a lot more complicated. Um, mm-hmm. and, and then, so, so we, um, and we, t- we talked about this a little bit, um, the, with the timing is really tight. I don't, I don't remember exactly what it is, but the timing on, on the $846,547 and 41 cents that was awarded to Colorado this, uh, and the 41 cents is just delightful to me. I think the action between two should get the 41 cents, but, um, the, um, what's the timing on that, Denise? I know, you know, this off the top of your head. So um, currently the state has an application out for capital project funds, right. which comes from the commerce. Those will close the end of August. Right. They should be awarded by the end of 2023. And the bead application process should open up then first quarter of 2024. Okay. So that's, the idea is that, one set of money gets awarded so we know where that's going to be. Right. And we partnerships and we can build off that. And then the feed money comes in as a secondary piece. And actually it's the much larger group of money. After that money in probably second or third quarter of 2024, there will be two pots of digital equity and inclusion money. One that will be distributed through the states and one that can be applied for directly from um, the federal. So one will be a federal competition. One will be through the state broadband office. Okay. It, oh, 
through the Office of Future Work. <laughs> this is also wildly complicated. I guess one of the things that's really interesting right now, as Denise is explaining how uh, this funding is going to be deployed, and at the same time, the state is in the process of finalizing this digital equity plan. They're doing that as we speak. And Denise and I have been involved with that from the inception. Uh, and so uh, what's kind of difficult because of timing with all of this is this path is doing is going down their path to finish. The capital projects fund's already begun. Okay, B's going to start. So hopefully, you know, we would be ready by B. But one of the things that with as far as urgency is that um, – we feel we have a real good understanding of what this is all going to look like from a digital equity perspective. If you got to develop a framework for your community or for your region in and around what this all looks like, you know, we can, we can do that. But at the same time, we have to, it's kind of us doing it, right? The state's plan is not done yet. And, and, but at the, but uh, and that's the way things are right now. And so on one hand, we're looking at, we got to develop coalitions and, Office of the Future Work Digital Equity Plan is only going to fund coalitions from through the state. They've already mentioned that. And so what does that mean? So communities in geographic areas are going to need to develop a coalition to get that type of funding. Okay, but then how does that impact your overall broadband approach and strategy, right? That's 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 the kicker, okay? And so you know, we're everybody's playing catch up. Because, and I'll be honest, broadband doesn't really understand community-based programming work. Nope. Correct. And that's a low issue. And, it, and it's and so, not. It's not. Um, it's not a neglectful thing. But we're talking well, about bridging that gap between um, the the technology. And, um, you know, there's two, there are two different objectives and we're trying to marry them in a very short time frame, um, that would be, um, for funding that we're never going to see again. One of the things that's really interesting in respect to looking at the digital equity piece, you look at a plan and you look at what you need to do. You're getting the charge from uh, the Office of the Future work with their digital equity movement to fund coalitions. You got to define what that looks like. So one of the things that's really important within our regions and within our communities in this area of the state is we got to know where we're at. You got to have a good right. assessment. Where are your communities are at? Who are your networks? How are you going to organize your networks? Are you going to organize your human network to enable your technology network? So organizing, we haven't done a good job at organizing our human network in all other areas around equity. Now we're charged to do it in the, in the space of a digital equity plan and strategy, right? So the urgency is organizing networks, human networks to digitalize those. And what is that strategy and what is that framework? If so you if if you had, um, and, and we're talking about months not years to do work that it's taken us decades to get to this point. Yeah. It, it, it's Herculean. So, yeah, you know, I think it's. Yeah. Can I add one more layer for you? Sure. 
um, because we don't want to make it easy. Let's make it a bit more um, complex. Um, while we're talking about what we want to, what we understand our needs at the household and business level, we also know that this initiative to um, develop infrastructure and broadband connectivity means that we need to have a workforce to construct it, manage it, deliver it, repair it, build it. Um, do all those kinds of things. So the workforce for telecommunications and infrastructure, it doesn't exist in the state. <laughs> no, I, Denise, thanks for bringing that up. So think um, conceptually um, who can do this in the, um, in the quickest and, and most efficient way um, to keep the cost down and keep those deliverables on point. Um, and it's people who are already in it. The, they're already experts. They're already doing it and creating brand new stuff that's not equity focused. Adds cost. Adds, adds burden. Adds all of those things. I'm glad. I'm glad you said that. So, we I've seen projections that say that um, if we hired everyone in Col Colorado who understands technology even this much, we would still be 60,000 jobs short. <laughs> so it's a capacity, there's a capacity um, question to all of this as well. Denise, thanks for making me feel horrible about all this. If there was anything that, <laughs> if there was um, anything that you guys uh, would like decision makers to know, um, what is it? I'll, Denise, we'll start with you. Then Sal will finish with you. Um, I would say um, for decision makers, there is not a quick fix hiring some national firm to come in and tell us what to do. I would encourage um, our decision makers to listen to local communities and use the resources like you just talked about those people that have been in the field that understand what a community is like, that know how to deliver services within our communities and our trusted sources. Um, far too often I see the quick fix and we hire someone and they come in and they have an East Coast or a West Coast understanding. And um, a lot of dollars go out of our communities and not much gets put back in knowledge or the ability for us to be sustainable long-term. Thank you, Denise. Sal? Um, I, I'm not going to get in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Say no, it. In, I guess, just, I, I guess yeah. the, the, harsh, you know, the harsh reality is, is uh, and I guess this is uh, one of the reasons when we talked here a year ago, is the importance of advocacy. You got to get to the table and you got to be aggressive and you got to be ready. Okay. And I've told this to communities before if you are not ready and you want to be aggressive, you're not going to have a solution or you, what are you going to bring to the table with your advocacy, right? So you got to have a plan. Okay. You got to understand your community. Uh, you're going to have decision makers that are willing to listen. And like Denise mentioned, 
this is a this is a road less traveled. And if you're not willing to go down that road, and that's where we're going down right now, and you're not have you don't have the courage as 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 an elected official or decision maker to do it, I I don't know. You probably shouldn't be there. And so the reality <laughs> is, no. This is a different word that we're we're doing. This is a different animal now. And especially I, if you come from an underserved community that has significant poverty issues, right? So we got to play catch up. Okay, we can't look at this from a traditional lens and from with the traditional mindset. Right. And so for us, we're going to keep making the same mistakes that have been made and other that have been made for forever. Right. 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 So that's where we're at with this. So I, it's just a matter of being able to look at this different and allowing those other sectors of your community to be part of the decision making and be part of how you're going to move forward. And uh, uh, I think. It's like, for example, one of the things I've looked at, technology is wonderful. I've been directly in and, in and out for, for a while now. Denise has been involved every day for, for, for decades, right? Uh, and I, every day, but part of the time, I've worked in other spaces. But one of the things that I do know is uh, technology will do to you if you're not ready to do for yourself. And they have done two communities without communities knowing. And that's why we created the situation we have, because those people, the underserved, have not been at the table. So they've been done too. Right. And it's real simple. And so, you know, I'm pretty impatient about this, but I think really both of us are with respect to what we've done. And we've taken some risks with some of the things that we've done. But we have enough experience to be able to project out and know what, what's going to get funded, how it's going to get funded. We took a risk with Adelante Connect, and you know, we hit the market that we got connected, you know, connect, got funded by the FCC in different places. And so uh, because the time is now to do it, I guess now is the time to be courageous for decision makers, elected officials, and those that are in a position to do it. I love okay. that. You said uh... – that's that's the greatest uh, final. Um, be cura- uh, courageous, and then we heard from Lola um, Spradley, never give up. So yeah, absolutely. Thank you. So and I mean the last piece I would say is um, the the communities in Southern Colorado and the Central Mountain areas they deserve to have the same ability to connect to the internet and be successful. As everyone else. They deserve it. Yep. They deserve it. Thank you. Thank you both so much um, for being with us and and for bringing, um, just helping us uh, to try to do this in the right way. Um, And and our hope is to finally get this done. So thank you guys both so, so much for your advocacy, for your support, and for um, all the great work you're doing. Yep. Thank you. Thanks. No, but also thank Action 22 you know, for creating the platform that we're doing this now, you know, that we have our, our broadband committee and we're able to do this because it's very significant, you know, and, and, and I think Action 22 has played that role historically. And the fact that we're doing it now with broadband is, is one of the best things that, that is happening in Southern Colorado right now. I always say we, we're just here to help. That's all we want to do. Yeah. Sal, thank you so much for saying that. We appreciate you guys. Um, and, uh, um, We'll uh, we'll talk, be talking um, all through this, and so we'll also do some follow up as as we get a little bit further down. Um, so I hope you guys will be back on the show for that.
Thank you for tuning in to Making Action Happen. Be sure to join your hosts, Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain, for another edition of the show on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.